This morning's sermon passage is from Paul's letter to Titus, known to us as chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word is a gift to us. Your word reveals you, and we need to see you. Your word reveals your ways, and we need to know them. Your word is living and active. It's fruitful, convicting, changing, teaching, shaping, transforming. We need all these things. So, Lord, I pray you would speak your word to your people. Lord, particularly, I ask for your help this morning. I yearn to convey truth to your people with both urgency and love. So, Spirit of God, I ask for your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're our guest today, we're very thankful you're with us. We are studying uh, the book of Titus here at Redeemer. One reason is because, well, it's in the Bible, it's true. That's enough. Additionally, this book, the book of Titus, was written by a man named Paul to a man named Titus with a very particular intent to shape young churches to be obedient to Jesus. Um, Now, by some definitions, we as an 11-year-old church are old, and by other definitions, we are young. I don't really care about the age. I care about this. We're the church And we want to be the church of Jesus the way Jesus intended his church to be shaped and not transfixed or moved by uh, the whims and the ways of whatever's going on in culture. And it's really easy to say that, and it's really hard to do that. And so we're asking the Lord to help us. As we've been studying through Titus, um, we're in chapter 3 and particularly uh, the verses that Nathan just read for us. Now, we asked Nathan to read verses 9, 10, 11, and Nathan very obediently read verses 9, 10, 11, but I'm going to preach verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And so I would ask you to indulge me there, or if not, I'm still going to preach verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, because that's what I prepared. Okay. But the fault is on me, and I'm going to own that, okay? Now, Verses 8 through 11 fall in this concluding section of Titus. It's kind of a final word. And notice the beginning of of verse 1. He says, 
remind them. Like, Paul wants Titus to remind the church of these things, remind them of these things. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because all we have is Christ. Because Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He's redeemed us from sin and death. He's transformed us into life and into his kingdom. And he wants us to live as if we actually have Christ. So so Titus 3 forces us to put two things together. The gospel of Jesus in the scripture is written with eternity in mind. But it's also written with the here and now in mind. And the vision of the New Testament is a people who have Christ. And because we have Christ, we walk in Christ's ways now and we continue to walk in them forever. So if you've been with us through the whole Titus series, and you're like, why do we keep talking about things like good works and heart dispositions and how we live now? Because Paul talks about those things over and over and over. Now, why would Paul talk about those things? Because They're true and they're right and they're good and they matter to the Lord. So I'm going to give you the whole sermon right now and then you can choose whether you want to listen to the rest of it or not, okay? Because I'm going to talk. But here it is. The good news of the scripture is that our only hope is Christ and Christ came to save his people. Now what if his people... That's us, by the way. What if his people actually lived and thought and talked and interacted and acted as if we have Christ? Or maybe better, as if Christ has us. Because that shapes all of everything. You might say, well, this passage seems really negative. It's talking about avoiding things and avoiding people. But here's why. What Paul's going to talk about in this passage is there's something excellent worth being celebrated. And that's what Christ has done for his people. And all verses 9, 10, and 11 are saying to the church is, don't give an audience and a platform to the things that distract from Jesus. That's really all it's saying is don't give an audience and don't give a platform to the things that distract from Jesus. So let's let's look at it. See what it says. First point, if you want to take notes. Something excellent. Now, I come from the generation when I hear the word excellent, I think of like stupidity and Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And if you don't know what that is, please don't Google it. Your life is better for not knowing that. But I just want you to know, I'm not choosing the word excellent because I'm trying to be cool. I'm choosing it because that's what's in the Bible. I can't avoid it this week, okay? It feels pedantic to say the gospel is excellent. But Paul says the gospel is excellent. 
So we're going to go with Paul's language, okay? Um, but there's something excellent. And what's excellent is who Christ is and what Christ has done for his church. It's so excellent that it's worthy of being celebrated and exalted and setting everything else aside for following Christ. So this passage is going to talk about in verse 8 what's excellent. And then in verses 9, 10, and 11, it's going to talk about some things that need to be set aside so that we can focus on what's excellent. So something excellent. Look at verse 8 with me. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, verse 8 begins with the phrase, the saying is trustworthy. You need to circle that or highlight that or take note of that. That's, that's a particular phrase that's intended by Paul to be a spotlight, like a stop and look. In the end of Paul's life and ministry, he wrote three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They were written to people about leading churches. That's what they have in common. And in those, he uses this phrase, in those three letters, he uses this phrase four times. This saying is trustworthy. And in that, what he's saying is, hear this. This is it. You know, it's like buying a book that's already been marked up and you open it and it's like circled, thesis. Here it is. This is it. What is it? It's what he has just said in verses three, four, five, six, and seven. I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize and we'll look at it. Here's what he's saying. The trustworthy saying is that Christ has come to deliver sinful people from the bondage of sin and death such that those people walk with Jesus now and into the life to come. Let's look at it. Verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Man, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? I hope it doesn't accurately explain who we are, but it seems to be the spirit of the day. What Paul is saying is we all used to be shaped by that. This sinfulness is the reality of humanity apart from Christ. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, so when Jesus appeared, he saved us. That means he he pulled us out of verse 3. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, so not because we climbed our way out, but he pulled us out. 
according to his mercy because he chose to. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we've been saved by God's mercy through Jesus and through the work of the Spirit. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, So the trustworthy saying is this, We were all in this wretched state of verse 3, but Christ brought us out of it. Guilt, shame, fear, covered in Christ. Prisoner, set free in Christ. Strangers and aliens made family in Christ. Hopeless made hopeful in Christ. Christ. And this good news about the risen King Jesus transcends all space and all time. There is no place and there will be no time where he's not Lord of all and saving his people. If we're in Christ, we're in him. The word saved is intended to sound like safe on purpose. Now, lots of good revival sermons stop right there. Come to Jesus, come. It's true. But notice what Paul says in verse 8. We're back to where we started. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Why? Why does Paul say, don't don't guess. Let Paul speak. Because it's going to shake you a little bit. Look at verse 8. Insist on these things. So that those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What? We weren't saved because of our good works. No. But the God who saves changes our desires, our dispositions, our inclinations, our hopes, and our longings. And he causes us to walk in his ways. So go back to verse 1. Submissive to rulers and authorities. Jesus creates that in us. Obedient. Jesus creates that in us. Ready for good work. Jesus creates that in us. Speak evil of no one. Jesus creates that in us. Avoid quarreling. Jesus creates that in us. Gentle. Jesus creates that in us. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Jesus creates that in us. Guys, these are not social constructs from wokeness. They're the words of the Bible. And we want to be Bible people no matter where that puts us on the social construct end of things. And sometimes, I I say this, following Jesus, man, I'm rifting now, this could be dangerous, but, but, but following Jesus is like trying to walk a straight line at the beach. Like, like pick a straight line and walk. But you better take your shoes off because on that straight line, sometimes you're going to be in sand that's dry and hot and sunny. And other times you're going to be knee deep in water because the shoreline does this. And if we say we're going to walk the line of the scripture with Jesus, 
Sometimes we're going to be really dry and sometimes we're going to be really wet. But if we're with Jesus, that's where we need to be. And if he says, be submissive to rulers and authorities because of what I've done for you, then just take it seriously. The trustworthy saying needs to be insisted on so that we'll walk with Jesus. And at times we might feel ultra conservative and at times we might feel a little bit the other direction. It's okay if we're walking with Jesus and we're being biblical. The gospel of Jesus is our only hope, period. So don't take up any agenda that threatens that. The gospel of Jesus is the only hope for our friends and family, period. So don't take up any agenda that threatens that. The gospel of Jesus is the only hope for the world. So don't take up any agenda that threatens that. The church of Jesus, empowered by the gospel of Jesus, is intended to love and manifest the love of God and walk in obedience. So take up that agenda and walk in it. So so our focus is on Jesus. It's trustworthy. It's excellent. Celebrate it. Focus here. That's what Paul's saying. Focus here. Focus on Christ. His ways, his power, his love, his mercy, his compassion, and walk with him. And then the passage is going to move forward and say, but there are some things that need to be avoided so that we can focus on Christ. Second point, there are some discussions to avoid. There are some discussions to avoid. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now let's juxtapose some words. The end of verse 8, excellent and profitable for all people is the gospel of Christ. The end of verse 9, these things are anti that. They are unprofitable and worthless. So when I say there are distractions from that must be avoided, I'm really not reading anything in there. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Focus on that which is profitable and worthwhile and avoid that which is unprofitable and worthless. Well, what is it? He says, Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now, let's hear this clearly. Paul does not say that all controversy is unprofitable. Sometimes controversy is necessary to defend the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. But he says that some controversy is just foolish. It's just unnecessary. Friends, it could be that today we have some difference of what's foolishness and what's necessary. And we can lovingly try to navigate that. But notice that Paul says some controversies just aren't worth the energy or the time or the effort or the anxiety or the fear or the sleepless nights that we pour into them. Just avoid them. Genealogies, He's not saying that all genealogies are bad. So if you've been on Ancestry.com recently, like, that's cool. That's not what he's talking about. 
But he's talking about people that are trying to create a spiritual lineage where they can set themselves up against one another as superior. And Paul is basically saying, like, your lineage or my absence thereof is not profitable for the kingdom of God. So you know what, church? Just avoid it. Just avoid it. Dissensions, that which literally tears apart and divides. Again, there might be some time that we, we need to have dissent for the sake of Christ and his truth, but, but avoid needless dissension. Quarrels about the law? No, no. He doesn't say avoid God's law because Christ said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. But needless argumentation about law keeping is not going to elevate Christ and his gospel. So Paul says, avoid it. He just says these things are, are unprofitable and worthless. So, it is possible, dare I say probable, for us to allow other truths, other stories, other convictions, and other narratives to root out a gospel focus. And when I say gospel focus, I, I, I'm meaning in, in the whole sense of what's laid out in verses 1 through 8, to root out a gospel focus from among God's people. And this is the warning of verse 9. Now, this might be the point in this message where you would expect me to open up the headlines and go point by point and say, worth fighting for, not worth fighting for. Or go point by point and say, God's side, not God's side. I'm not going to do it. And it's not because I'm afraid of doing it. It's not the point of the message. Here's the point of the message. What if those things don't matter? What if, I'm not, and by the way, I'm not saying everything in, in today's current climate doesn't matter. I'm just saying the first question that this passage drives us to ask is, does this actually matter? Does this matter? And, and the grid is, does it help us celebrate what's excellent about who Christ is and what he's done for his people? But verse 9 clearly says, church, there are some discussions that it's best if we just stay out of them. It's best if we just stay out of them. So this implies then that our corporate focus matters. What we focus on as people gathered matters. Our Sunday gatherings, when you come to a small group, when you come to a Bible study, what we focus on matters. And I think there's a difference between asking this question, how does the gospel of Jesus shape my thinking about fill in the blank? versus how do I elevate fill in the blank to the only thing that we focus on? Does that distinction resonate there? Because the gospel of Jesus is going to shape how we think about all the things. Second, our personal focus matters. Where do we spend our time 
our words, our thoughts? What do we value, pursue, and invest in? The answers to those questions are going to shape who we are. And, and, and there are so many things that are just secondary to what God is doing through Christ in his world. Now, notice I said secondary. I didn't say have to go away, but they're secondary. Third, our personal words matter. What if we viewed our words, our conversations, our text messages, our postings on all forms of media as a stewardship that we'll give an answer for? Now, lest you think I'm reading too much into a couple passages or a couple verses of Scripture. I want to give you a couple more that I think move us in this direction. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, as I conclude this, I want you to take whatever issue is on the front of your mind right now, and you're going, are you saying I shouldn't care about? Whatever that issue is, okay? You got it? You got it visualized? No, I'm not saying you shouldn't care about it. But I'm saying how you should think about it and how you ponder it and how you speak about it, and how you exhort others about it, should be about Christ being exalted and the people of Christ walking in his ways. And if that's your words, and that's your action, and that's why you do what you do, because you're convinced that the scripture says, go and do in this way, then do it, say it, tweet it. But let's be driven in this way that we want to be the people who love the Lord, love his word, love his gospel, want to live out his gospel in words and deeds and actions that are real and tangible, and then go and do. This isn't trying to say, let's just retreat into our sins are covered by Jesus. Our sins are covered by Jesus. Our sins are covered by Jesus. Our sin, like, that, that's not what I'm calling for here. I'm calling for a people whose sins are covered by Jesus, who robustly live out the gospel in the world and want others to join in that more than being right and more than lifting and elevating other agendas up. 
third. Paul goes a little bit further and just proves that the Bible writers understood how raw the nature of humanity is. And he says there are some people that you're just going to have to avoid. And as a bit of an idealist, I just don't like verses 10 and 11. But they're in the Bible because Paul knows they're true. Verses 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. So stirs up division literally means someone who stirs up dissension and division and divisiveness and brokenness and anger and venom among the people of God. But I know none of us have ever in our lifetime in the Southern United States been in a church that has somebody like that, right? Can I get an amen? No, I can't because it's a lie. We've all been in that church. Maybe even some of us have been that person. Paul just knows that some people are particularly, spectacularly gifted at bringing others down and bringing the church down. So he knows that he's got to give some leadership about what the church needs to do. Now, now notice the pattern here. You've got a divisive person. Or you might be the divisive person. But notice the pattern. Number one. Love the divisive person enough to warn them. Now, friends, everything that needs to be said can be said in a kind and respectful way. Maybe you need to pray hard enough to get there. But love a divisive person enough to kindly and respectfully Warn them about their divisiveness. Well, what if they won't listen? Paul says, love them enough to kindly and respectfully warn them again. Now, who are you warning? The divisive person's friends? No. Their community group? No. You're, you're going to be man or woman enough to go and talk to them about their divisiveness. This is Matthew 18 brought to bear in Titus chapter 3. And if you can't go to them, be quiet because you're probably being divisive. And then number three. If this person continues to stir division, stop giving them an audience for their divisiveness. These, this might be the holiest sentence that a church member could say to another church member. I don't think it's right that we have this conversation right now. And that can be the end of it. Did anybody get mad? Anybody scream or yell? Do we have to come to blows? No, I just, I don't think it's right or appropriate that we continue to have this conversation. I think that could be the end of it. Why? Because we want to be mean to people? No. Because we want to muzzle people? Maybe. But no. Why? 
Because we want the gathering of the body of Jesus to elevate and escalate and celebrate and make much of and talk about and pray through and apply and plan and live what Jesus wants. And we're just not gonna have the space or the time to have certain conversations or to continue letting people pirate conversations. Verse 11, such a person is already warped, already sinful, already self-condemned. We've warned and we've warned. We can keep warning, but we don't have to give audience again and again and again and again. Why? Because we have good, glorious, commendable, profitable things to focus on. Let's focus on these things. Let's celebrate these things. Let's walk in this way. Man, if you're visiting our church today, you're probably like, where in the world have I come? <laughs> like, we're really blessed. We have a lot of unity and joy peace. God's been really good to us. But we live in a crazy time. And crazy seems to beget crazy. And church people don't seem to be immune to it. So let's not get distracted from Jesus and his work and his word, and walking with him in the real hard things of this world with silliness and futility and bitterness and anger and divisiveness. Anytime a leader talks about divisiveness and things that need to be silenced and people that maybe don't need to be listened to, there's always the risk that it gets heard like this. Jamie thinks that he's always right, and if you question him, you're wrong. That's not true. Or our leaders think that they're always right, and if you question them, they're wrong. Infallible people doing the best we can to walk with Jesus and invite you to join us. We might be wrong. Come and talk to us. I might be the divisive person. Please love me enough to come and warn me. But we want to create a culture of people that want to walk with Jesus. And figure it out and be faithful and be the ones who can say, verse three, we used to be like this, but look what God's done. Look what God's done, even here, even here. And I think that he's eager to do that.